Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. When my wife, Cassia, and I first moved to this area about seven years ago, we had a half a job between the two of us. And so uh, we moved into the cheapest apartment that we could possibly find. And uh, it was a five-story apartment. We lived on the fifth floor. There was an elevator we'd take uh, to get up and down. Things were okay to start off with, uh, but then some unfortunate things began to happen. Uh, The first unfortunate thing was that somebody decided to take the liberty to carve a giant body part in the elevator on the panel just above the buttons. And, uh, and so this was the last thing that I saw when I left my apartment every day, and this is the first thing that greeted me when I came home. And so I took this to the attention of our landlady and said, this probably shouldn't be this way. Can you do something? And her response was, it's not hurting anyone. Okay. I begged to differ, but I dropped the matter, okay? And a few weeks went by. And uh, then, it was, it was the end of a long day, my wife Cash and I were coming home, uh, we got to our apartment, walked into the elevator, hit five, El- doors closed, went up, third, fourth, fifth floor, and just when the doors should have opened, what instead happened was the entire elevator began shaking rapidly. Like it was a toy in the hands of a toddler. Like it was a, a ride at a thriller amusement park where you walk away thinking, I'm so glad that never happens in real life. That was what was happening to us. It lasted for like 10 seconds. And in those 10 seconds, I looked over and Kasha and I made eye contact. And I'm pretty sure we were thinking the same thing in those moments, which was, you know, we had a good run. It's been good. And uh, it's been a pleasure to be your spouse. And I'll see you in a few minutes here when we see Jesus face to face, all right? So just as we'd come to terms with our fate, the, so- the shaking totally stopped. And then, bing, the doors opened. And we ran out of that elevator. I went straight to our landlady, described this harrowing experience to her. And her response was, I will put somebody to it when I get a chance. Okay, okay then. So we promised to never set foot in that elevator again, and we decided to instead take the stairwell five stories up and five stories down every single day. Fast forward a few months, it's now wintertime. I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this, but it gets a little cold around here during the winter. And so people in my apartment unit apparently found it more convenient to take their dogs instead of outside to the stairwell to relieve themselves. So I came home one day, I was walking up, the five flights of stairs, and about halfway up, I feel something wet on my shoulder, and I look up, and I see a mixture of urine and feces dripping down from the stairs on top of me. I went to my landlady and complained. I said, this isn't right. Can you do something about this? It may shock you to realize, to hear, that this didn't make it to the top of her priority list. Now, to give her credit, I think she was trying to set a personal record at Candy Crush, and we've all been there, right? So we now had, my wife and I, a choice between the poopy stairwell and the elevator of doom. And we chose the elevator of doom. That's right, every single day we had a near-death experience and we learned to live with it. And it wasn't all terrible. We ended up calling it affectionately the elevator of prayer because it drastically helped our prayer life during those few months. The only time it got kind of wonky was when we forgot to tell a friend that we'd invite over about the elevator of doom. And so we'd hear a knock at the door and open up and say, hey, and there would be a stark white, soon-to-be ex-friend of ours standing in our doorway. 
every step of the way, I would go to our landlady and I would say, this isn't right. You have the authority. Can you please do something? The question for us today that we're going to dive into is, are we allowed to talk that way to God? When we encounter the brokenness and evil and suffering in our world, are we allowed to go to the one who's in charge of the universe and demand that he do something? We're in the second week of a seven-part series as we're walking through the Lord's Prayer. It's Jesus teaching his disciples, which includes us, how to pray. And so last week we heard Pastor Clayton unpack the very first line of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And today we're going to go into the next line of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Your kingdom come. So how does this line teach us to pray? Well, embedded in this line of the Lord's Prayer is the declaration that the world is not as it should be. And the Christian concept of the kingdom is that Jesus came when he first arrived to inaugurate the kingdom, but it will not be brought in its fullness until he returns a second time. And so you and I are living between the times. This is what theologians call the already but not yet aspect of God's kingdom. One day it's going to be here in its fullness, but it's not here yet. And so the tension that we experience is highlighted right here in this line of the Lord's Prayer. To pray your kingdom come is to acknowledge that there's a disjointedness between the way things are and the way things ought to be. And it's a cry in the midst of that for God to help, to do something. The message translation of this line of the Lord's Prayer is, God set the world right. I love that. So in this line of the Lord's Prayer, not only do we see that we are allowed to bring this cry to God, Jesus actually encourages it as a regular part of our prayer life. And this, the biblical term for this kind of crying out to God over what's broken and a cry for him to fix it is called lament. And although lament may be a new faith concept for many of us here, uh, it's been a form of prayer used by God's people throughout the Bible. The entire story of Scripture is a people who've received a promise from God about the way the world is going to be, but living in the midst of a world that doesn't meet up with that reality. And, and, and God's shalom is promised, his peace, his wholeness. But we look around and instead we see brokenness. And so the result is that God's people through the years have been accustomed to prayers of lament. But it's not a form of prayer that many of us are accustomed to. And I would argue that if we can grow used to this form of prayer and use it, our prayer life will become much more rich and honest and vibrant. So how exactly should we go about praying for God to set the world right. What does lament look like in practice? Well, a, a word that I found helpful in structuring prayers of lament is a, from a Hebrew word called ekah. Can you say ekah? Fantastic. You learned a little bit of Hebrew. All right, so that word in English translates to how. Okay, how? And it's used often in, in many prayers of lament throughout the Bible. In fact, the whole Old Testament book of Lamentations, there's a whole book about lament, begins with the word ekah, how. And this word can guide our prayer life too. So to get a feel for what it means to incorporate this into our prayer life, we're going to look at five characters of the Bible who are lamenters and, and, and see how they use this akha, this how, to guide their prayers. And I know that many of you will remember only about 2% of what I say today in two days. And so if there's any 2%, let this be it. Make lament a regular part of your prayer life. And if you have trouble starting, just begin with the word how, and there's a good chance you'll be on the right track, all right? So the first step of lament is to name 
to name. To pray your kingdom come means to see and name what is at work against God's kingdom. And the aka cry of naming is how awful. How awful. A lamenter in the Bible who exemplifies this kind of lament is a man named Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived during a really tumultuous, tough time in the history of God's people. God had promised that his kingdom would be an example and a light to the nations, and he commanded his people to do that. And instead, the kingdom was fractured into two failing kingdoms, and they were spiraling into chaos. Babylon, the superpower of the day, was threatening to totally demolish God's people. And so Jeremiah looked at God's promises and the reality around him, and he saw a disjointedness. And so he names it. This is what he says. Jeremiah chapter 12. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Does anybody ever feel this way? You know, it's easy to thank God for the parts of Scripture that are filled with joy and hope and liveliness. But it's also good to thank God for the parts of Scripture that are really raw and honest like this one. So let's do that now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jeremiah knew that the kingdom on earth was to be an alternative community, a nation that had God at its very center, a a nation that was supposed to flourish and be a light to other nations around it. But that's not what he sees, and so he names it. He says, God... You are supposed to rule with justice. But can we talk about your justice for just a moment? Where is it? Why is it that you seem to be idly standing by as the wicked prosper and the faithless live at ease? In short, he's saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And he brings his complaint directly to the throne of God. As Christians, we have that framework for understanding why the world seems to be so off-kilter. And that is that God created the world good, but sin entered the world and fractured the human experience. And sin pervades every part of human life. And so this is where lament begins, with acknowledging and naming what is broken. And to acknowledge and name it means to be prophetic, right? Jeremiah was one of many Old Testament prophets, and their role was to highlight what was at odds with God's kingdom. And so to pray, for you and I, to pray for God's kingdom to come is to be a modern-day prophet, to shine a light on treason, ways in which we have overthrown God's rule and set ourselves up as king and queens here on earth. Throughout history, change has always begun with naming. The civil rights movement began not because racial injustice began happening, but because people began naming it. The pro-life movement began not because abortions started happening, but because people started using their voice to speak up for the voiceless. The, the Me Too movement began not because sexual harassment and abuse started happening, but because people started naming it. And, and the same is true with the Church Too movement, where people said, I'm going to shine a light on the Church Too and say the same thing is happening in the very place where it should never happen. But it's not just issues of social justice that are worth naming. The path to personal healing begins with naming as well. Think about the practice of Alcoholics Anonymous. You walk into a room and the whole premise is that you walk in because you're broken and you're in need. I I so often wish that the church would feel more like that, right? You walk in and the whole thing is, my name is Corey, I'm an alcoholic. To walk into a church to say, "My, my name is Corey, I'm a sinner in need of grace. But not all brokenness that you and I experience in the world is a direct result of personal sin either. 
And to pray for God's kingdom means for it to invade all sorts of brokenness. So sometimes things need to be named like, I just lost my house to a fire and all my possessions with it. And I'm hurting. Some things that we lament just have to do with the passing of time, right? Maybe it's a a friend that you used to be close with. Nothing really happened, but you guys have just drifted apart and, and you're hurting over that lost friendship. Maybe you're moving out of a house that you've been in for many, many years and you're saying goodbye to all the memories that were started there. Maybe you are a student who just finished high school and you're getting ready to go off to college and there's a part of you that is just sad. Maybe you're the parent of that college student getting ready to say goodbye. Maybe your sadness comes from some sort of unrealized potential. Maybe you've been trying for years to get pregnant without seeing any success. Maybe you struggle with some sort of chronic pain and it prevents you from living in the way that you really want to live. Maybe you or somebody around you struggles with mental illness or has some sort of disability, right? Those of you who know uh, our story, we have a son who's uh, almost two years old and uh, he was born with a brain malformation that apart from a miracle means he will never see and he will never speak and he will never walk. And we've had to name that and say that's broken. Maybe you've been working really hard uh, to get into a school. Maybe you just finished high school and you sent out some college applications and you are just now getting the letters back saying, I'm sorry, you're not in. Maybe you've been working really hard at a, for a promotion at work and you feel like, I deserve this, I've earned it, and it's just not happening. None of these things are necessarily a result of personal sin, but they are a part of living in a broken world and these things need to be named too. When we start to name things, we shouldn't be surprised when other people come forward as well and say, me too. That's my experience too. I'm hurting in the same way, and and now I see I'm not alone. And so you see, when we have the courage to name what's broken, we can actually create a sense of community and solidarity with others around us. And if there's anything we've learned from the recent abuse scandals that have plagued the Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Church and even two large churches right here in the western suburbs of Chicago, it's that when we cover up and refuse to name what's broken, things don't get more healthy, they get less healthy. We've seen that denying or diminishing brokenness is like covering up an infected wound. It may hide it for a little while, but it will get worse. It will become more infected until it becomes undeniable. See, so to name brokenness means to do the uncomfortable work of opening the wound and cleaning it out so that the healing process can begin. The church will never be the salt and light in the world that Jesus calls us to be until we become a people who name. How awful is the cry of naming? And when we name, it forces us to reckon with the next step in the grieving or lament process, which is feeling it, feeling it. To pray your kingdom come means to be broken over what's broken. And the aka cry of feeling is oftentimes, God, how could you let this happen? How could you let this happen? A person in the Bible who shows this aspect of lament is a man named Job. Even if you haven't grown up in church, maybe you're not very familiar with the Bible, you probably have heard something about the man Job. He was a rich man. He was, uh, had a lot of possessions. He had a large family. And he also was a righteous man. He was a worshiper of God. But the very beginning of the book of Job, he loses everything. His life spirals into chaos. And as that's happening, he begins to question God. 
And Job's journey through suffering highlights a really key part of lament for us. He feels and allows himself to feel the brokenness of the world. And the critical question in the book of Job is, if God is king of the universe, is the king good? Can this king be trusted? And so after naming his afflictions, Job says this in Job 10. He says, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaints and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Probably not a verse you're going to see on a coffee mug anytime soon. See, Job names what's broken, but more than that, he is broken over what's broken, and he brings that honesty right to God. Here's a man who has removed the verbal filter. You'd be shocked if you read through the book of Job. He's looking at the devastation in his life, and he is demanding an answer from God. He's saying, God, how could you let this happen? He shows us what it looks like to allow ourselves to feel the brokenness of our world without skipping past it, without numbing it. My best friend in high school uh, was also the young man who led me to Christ. He was a really outgoing, gregarious young guy. Everybody in the high school knew him. He was a phenomenal piano player. And he also loved Jesus. And he was an advocate for Jesus. And he told people about Jesus. Really bright, intelligent. And when he spoke the gospel to me. He also introduced me to a group of friends who were living out the gospel as high schoolers. And I said, if that is what God does to people, then I want in. And so it wasn't long before I gave my life to Christ. And I soon had a pastoral call into ministry. And he said, I know you want to study Bible. And there's a school in Chicago. You should check it out. And I'll, I'll be in Wisconsin. And, and, and we can visit each other. And so I came and I, and I applied and, and I got in. And, and that's the reason I'm here, which is the reason I'm at this church. And, and, and so we visited each other. We stayed in touch as college started. But I got a call from him on one evening, and he said, uh, he said, Corey, I got to come down and visit you. And I said, okay. He's like, like now. So I said, okay, come on down. And, and so he came. And, and the only place when, when he arrived that we could find to sit was on our back steps of my apartment. And, and it was a frigid January day. And so we sat on the steps next to each other. I said, what's going on? And he looks at me and he says, I have almost committed suicide three times in the last six months. See, my friend had wrestled with same-sex attraction for years. And as a follower of Jesus, he had this conviction that dating other men was not God's best for him. It wasn't God's design for flourishing for his life. And so he committed himself to investigating what it looked like to be somebody who was committed to Jesus who had this attraction. And so he spent hours and hours in prayer, in anguish before God crying out to God, staying close to God on the journey. He, he was in counseling for the, uh, two, two times a week for the better part of 10 years, thousands of hours of, of counseling. He was engaged in community in two different churches. As I sat there next to my friend, there was not a piece of advice that I could give him, not a Bible verse that I could show him that he had not heard already. What kind of advice do you give a person who's in a place like that? As I sat there, I couldn't think of one thing. And so I scooted over next to him, and I put my arm around him, and I said, 
I am so sorry. I have no idea what to say. Except for this. I'm not going anywhere. In the book of Job, when Job's friends find out what happened to him, they come looking for him. And when they find him, the book of Job says he was so disheveled physically by his grief that they didn't even recognize him. But when they find out it's him, they come up to him. And in Job chapter 2, we find these words. They come up to him. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. This is where a lot of people think that the Jewish practice of sitting shiva began. The, the Jewish word, uh, or the Hebrew word shiva means seven. Sitting for seven days and seven nights without saying a word. And so it's a part of the, in Jewish culture, the lament process, which can last for months or years. And, and it's a, a place in the process where people will come to the house of a grieving person and they will just sit with them for sometimes hours and sometimes days, often without ever saying a word. Because they know that sometimes just being there is enough. Feeling the pain of the person. On that cold January day, without even realizing I was doing it, I was sitting shiva with my broken friend. For many of us who come across people who've experienced some sort of grief or trauma, even though our intentions are good, what we contribute is trite theological statements and Christian bumper sticker platitudes. We come up with things like, God is with you in this, and, and he's not going to let you go, and uh, he's going to use this for good, and God can, is never going to give you more than you can handle, and our intentions are good. But the result is often we short-circuit the grieving process. See, K-love can be great, but not every experience is all positive and encouraging. Scripture gives us permission to sometimes just be sad. And we, when we let ourselves feel the full weight of the brokenness of the world, sometimes the words that come out of our mouth are raw and unfiltered, just like Job. He says, I will give free reign to my complaints, and I will speak out in the bitterness of my soul. See, Job is practically yelling at God in the midst of his grief. And if there's one thing that we can learn across all of the lamenters of the Bible, it's this, that yelling at God is still praying. Yelling at God is still praying. Many of us have this high view of God, right? God is ruler and king. We have no problem seeing him as, as high and, 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 and uh, lifted up. But, but many of us, as we have heard last week, struggle to see that God is father too. And he relates to us as a father tenderly relates to his children. And that should affect how we talk to God in the midst of of our grief. I think that some, the reason that some people have experienced a crisis of faith or maybe have even walked away from God is because they have not seen a legitimate option for how to deal with the raw brokenness and anger and pain within the framework of what they were taught a relationship with God should look like. But this is where lament comes in. Lament is a release valve that allows for legitimate questioning, pain, and anger, get this, while staying connected with God. One of the books that I have read recently, and I'm going to recommend it today, it's a book called The Louder Song by a woman named Aubrey Sampson. She's a local author here in the Chicagoland area. And uh, I'm going to recommend this book for anybody who wants to grow deeper in the practice of lament. And so it's available at Resource Bookstore across all four of our campuses. But I want you to hear what Aubrey says, has to say about the power of laments and the language we use. It's a long quote, 
but I, ju- I think this might just change the way you relate to God in the midst of your pain, okay? So stick with it. She says, when Christians lament, we do so to a God who lets us. Our cries, even our cries of doubt and despair, fall on his loving, listening ears. What's remarkable about Christianity is that we have a king who is also a steadfast, loving husband and friend. He not only permits lament, he gives us the language of lament. We have a God who desires and deserves our wholehearted praise, but he's also a God who wants an authentic, meaningful, intimate love relationship with us. We have a groom who gives his bride a voice. Even if our lament is impolite, raw, or bitter, even if we express sorrow or verbalize anger, even if we make demands as we lament, we actually preach to the world and to ourselves that it is possible to have a fearless, deeply intimate relationship with God. A God who is not only worthy of our thanksgiving and our joyful worship, but also wants every part of us, not just our pretty selves, but our sharp edges, our sin struggles, our suffering, and our sadness. If we never acknowledge our pain to God, we will never truly know what it means to praise him on the other side of suffering. It is in our honest crying out to God about our pain that our worship of God grows more authentic. For many of us, this way of relating to God feels foreign, right? We've never been taught about the healthy expression of complaint, bringing your complaints to God as we truly feel the brokenness of the world. But my hope is that today we would feel the permission to approach our God as Father, a Father who wants all of us, even our laments, and that through that we would see our relationships with God deepen. So lament includes what is what naming what's broken and feeling what's broken but it also includes owning what's broken. To pray your kingdom come means taking ownership over the brokenness in you and around you. So the aka cry of brokenness, owning brokenness, is how have I contributed? A third lamenter in the Bible we're going to learn from is King David. And even though David was a king, a lot of authority, he could also be humbled by his own sin and own it. Here's what he says in Psalm 32. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count, count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. And I I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David's words are a powerful example of what it means to own our sin. Many of you have heard the the line, God, break my heart for what breaks yours, right? But sometimes, what breaks God's heart is our own brokenness. And we need to be broken over our own brokenness, too. My wife spent the early part uh, of her uh, life in Romania. And in Romania, uh, Christians there have such a reputation for being quick to own their part in the brokenness of the world that they are often known as repenters. Don't you love that? Repenters. To be a Christian means to repent, to acknowledge your sin, to deliberately turn away from it and towards Jesus. And so repentance should not be the exception of, of, the, of the life of the Christian. It should be the rule of the life of the Christian. Repentance keeps us honest. It keeps us humble, on God's, dependent on God's grace. It keeps our relationships with other people honest. 
And, and just as David declares, declares in Psalm 32, when we keep our sin bottled up inside, that, that we don't experience reprieve, we experience a weightiness, a rottenness. His bones are wasting away, he says. But for us, we know that on the other side of repentance is not something scary because of the promise that we have in Christ. On the other side of repentance is always forgiveness and hope and healing. I've uh, begun developing a, a daily pattern in my relationship with my wife, Kasha. Uh, it's a daily relational check-in tool. It's, uh, we use it for our marriage, but it can be done between any two people. And uh, it's called FANO. And it's something I picked up from one of our elders out at Streamwood. And it's an acronym that stands for feeling, uh, affirmation, need, and ownership. And so, uh, so it starts with feeling. And it's, each person goes through this acronym and, and shares. So it's like a five or ten minute thing. Feeling. How am I feeling today? What's the state of my heart? Share that with you. Affirmation. What can I affirm in the other person? You words of affirmation, people? Amen. What are my needs today? And the last part is ownership. Ownership. Taking daily inventory, because we're Christians, we believe that it's not an occasional sin, but it's when I sin, I need to own that and ask for forgiveness. It's a daily thing. And so in my marriage, we don't wait for things to get really, really, really bad, and then we own and apologize. It's a daily habit, short accounts. It's a beautiful thing. And the beautiful thing about doing it daily, too, with my wife, is that if I am ever at a loss for what I need to own, she is right there to help me remember, okay? <laughs> what are you doing to own sin in your life? There's a uh, pastor, an author named Eric Raymond, who has this wonderful thing to say about how the Lord's Prayer ties with this concept. He says, we cannot cry, thy kingdom come, while promoting our own kingdom. Sin is an expression of disloyalty to the king. It's a trading of crowns. It salutes the flag of self over the flag of Christ. And therefore, the cry of loyalty is also a cry of repentance. We want the kingdom to come in this world around us and also in us. And so we pray, O oh Lord, I see my disloyalty to you and I hate it. Incline my heart to love you and your gracious and just administration so that I can eagerly long for your kingdom to come in this world. Church, how are we owning, corporately even, how we have contributed to the brokenness of the world? As we are grieved over things like fires and flooding and famine, ways in which we feel abused by the world, are we taking ownership over the ways that we have abused the world? As we mourn the loss of life around the world due to lack of access to clean drinking water, are we reckoning with the fact that we could provide clean drinking water to every person on the planet for less than half of what Americans spent on pizza last year alone? As we cry out against racial injustice, are we taking inventory and repenting of the ways that we have used our own privilege for our own benefit at the expense of others? As we decry sexual immorality out there in the world, are we repenting over the fact that when we as Christians get alone with our smartphones or our laptops, that we are statistically just as guilty as the rest? As we decry the evil of abortion, are we repenting of the fact that we as a church have often done too little to solve the problems that put women in positions where they feel like they have no other choice? And as we grieve over the people in our life who have rejected Jesus... Are we repenting over the ways that we have often failed to truly misrepresent Jesus to them? A critical part of lamenting is owning how we have contributed 
to the brokenness, the brokenness of the world? Do you have a space where you're regularly owning your lust, your sin, your, your pride, your selfishness, your addiction, whatever it is? Ideally out loud in the context of a relationship with somebody else. Maybe in a group. Are you in a community group where this is happening on a regular basis? Parents, are you repenting to your kids? I have a four-year-old son. His name's Keller. And my wife regularly reminds me, he's watching you. He's watching you. And he is. And he watches all of me. Not just the good parts. He sees my sin too. And so I've developed this habit of repenting to my four-year-old son. There's times where I have to say, Keller, daddy messed up. Daddy sinned. I, I, I should have done that and I didn't. Or I, I did that when I shouldn't have. And I am sorry. Will you forgive me? That's a humbling thing. But it's also one of the most sanctifying, most transforming practices in my life. So we've said that a lament includes a how awful. Uh, God, how could you let this happen? And a how have I contributed? But biblical lament moves beyond brokenness and sitting in brokenness. Biblical lament drives us to action. So the akal cry of action in the midst of brokenness is how can I help as a kingdom citizen? How can I help? The next lamenter in the Bible we're going to learn from is the Apostle Paul. He's a Jewish man who literally made a living of persecuting and putting Christians to death when the Jesus movement first began. And then he had this encounter with the risen Jesus, and his whole life changed. And he made it his mission to tell everybody in the world about the good news of grace, that God could save sinners just like him. And so Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome about what it looks like to live as a light in a broken world, a call to action. And he summarizes it this way in Romans 12. He says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul, Paul's writing to this church in Rome. They're trying to figure out what it means to be a light in the midst of a really broken situation. And Paul writes a call to action. He's calling the people in Rome to live as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus rather than the kingdom of Caesar. And so he, 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 it's a beautiful list in Romans chapter 12. You should read it for yourself sometimes. But he, he says, where you see selfishness, honor others above yourself. Where you see affliction, respond with joy and patience in prayer. Where you see somebody who's needy, Share with them and offer hospitality. If you see somebody who's a persecutor, bless them. Where you see discord, work to live at peace with everyone around you. And where you see wrongdoing, don't try to take vengeance, but leave that to God. Now, can you imagine, church, if we began living this way? Can you imagine the transformation we'd see in our communities if we truly lived as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus in response to the brokenness of our world? And when Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, I, I can't help but think that ringing in his ears were the words that Jesus said himself in John 16. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. There it is. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So in the context of Jesus' promise, we see that the kingdom's arrival is not dependent on our effort, but it does involve our effort. We see that we are ambassadors of the king. That we are the method by which God is using to usher in his kingdom. Listen, we are part of the answer to our own prayer, your kingdom come. So what does it look like for you to be an active citizen of the kingdom of God? 
I'm really grateful to be a part of a church that has a ton of opportunities to bring the kingdom to our area. God's kingdom comes to our area every week through the 300 plus community groups that gather at homes and restaurants across our area, pockets of people where you can be known and loved at the very same time. Every week, God's kingdom comes through Care Night, which offers a space for hope and healing uh, in the context of community for those who feel stuck. Each week, God's kingdom comes through our student ministry, which equips and empowers and encourages students to go back out into their homes and their schools to be lights for Jesus. Each week, God's kingdom comes through uh, Go Teams, which go out to the nations to fulfill Jesus' call to bring the gospel to the corners of the earth. Each week, God's kingdom comes through administered justice, which provides free or cheap legal help to those who can't afford it. God's kingdom comes to our area through our life ministry and our kids ministry and Kids Hope USA, our refugee ministry, our corrections ministry. The list goes on and on and on. But it doesn't take a program for God's kingdom to come. It can happen in the little moments of your day-to-day life too. God's kingdom comes when you buy groceries for the single mom in the line in front of you at the store. God's kingdom comes... When, when we advocate for unborn children. God's kingdom comes when we advocate for women who feel like they have no other choice other than abortion to say there is another way. God's kingdom comes when we advocate for children after they're born. God's kingdom comes when we mow our neighbor's lawn and when we open our mouth to boldly declare the gospel and invite them into the kingdom. God's kingdom comes when we intentionally develop relationships with people who are different than ourselves, when we write letters to our lawmakers, when we tell people that they are loved and that they are capable of loving too. God's kingdom comes when we draw near to those who are hurting and in honesty and with conviction say, this sucks. But by God's grace, it will not always be this way. But in the meantime, I'm here to help. What can I do? What is your action in the midst of lament? Maybe your action is getting involved in one of those kingdom-bringing ministries I just mentioned. Maybe you're new to this lament thing, and so your next step is to name what's broken. Maybe you're the only person around you who will have the courage to name what's broken. Maybe you need to feel the permission to actually let yourself feel what's broken, maybe for the first time. Or maybe you need to look around and say, what do I need to own about what's broken around me? Or maybe it's working towards the discipline of clinging to the hope that we have in Christ, which brings us to the final how of lament. The aka cry of hope in the midst of brokenness is this. How great thou art. How great thou art. The last lamenter we're going to learn from in the Bible is the Apostle Peter. He wrote this letter that was circulated throughout the Roman Empire to people, the Christians in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. These were uh, provinces that were diverse in a lot of ways, but they had this one thing in common. They were all followers of Jesus. They were all living in the Roman Empire, and they were all experiencing persecution because they claimed the name of Jesus. And so Peter writes this letter to them to encourage them, and it starts this way. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, Peter's declaration to followers of Jesus who are in the midst of brokenness and suffering, and maybe that's you, is this. Things will not always be this way. Right now, things are hard. But God has not abandoned you. In fact, he is shielding you with his power until his kingdom comes in full. And even though you can't see Jesus now, you love him. And he has provided you with the hope that things will get better. And more than that, not one ounce of your suffering, not one of your tears is wasted. God is using all of it to produce in you a genuine faith that is of greater worth than gold. And so even in the midst of suffering, Peter says, you can still have an inexpressible and glorious joy. And that joy is only going to get better when we see Jesus face to face. Just as that old hymn says, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow with humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Here's how I want to end our time together. What is it that motivates us to pray your kingdom come? It's this. We know the kingdom is coming because the king is coming. To pray your kingdom come means to look brokenness straight in the face, to name it, to see it, to say it's there. And when we cry out, God, where are you in the midst of brokenness? Jesus responds, I am broken with you. Jesus came to be broken so that he could undo our brokenness and make us whole again. And when we cry out, God, do something, his response is, I hear you. I have, and I am, and I will. But while this world is still broken, it's okay to be sad. Just never forget the final words I left you with in the last chapter of the Bible, which say, he who testifies to these things says, surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. What I'd like to do is give us a few moments before I close this in prayer, in the quietness of your seat, to give you space to lament, to give you space to release the eka cry of your heart. So take a few moments, do that now, and then I'll close us in prayer.
God, we pray that we would never lose sight of your kingdom. God, may we never stop praying for your kingdom. And we pray even now, may your kingdom come with power to St. Charles and DeKalb and Aurora and Streamwood. And so we say with citizens across the world and throughout all generations, come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon.